Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to another episode of the Round Trippers Podcast. I am your host, Austin Spiro. We got a good one for you today. Uh, in the second episode of the third season of this podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, it's the second half of our preview. We're going to be doing the NL preview, uh, so I'm going to be talking about all the National League teams today, and then we're going to do a little something different for the last call. Uh, instead of a story of mine, uh, I'm going to do something a little different and hopefully introduce something that's a another uh, another lane for me to give you for this podcast. We're going to tell a story of a player that you probably have never heard of, but you probably should know about. Uh, let's di- let's dig right into it. Uh, first of all, let's talk about um, some of the AL teams that I previewed last episode. Um, first of all, uh, James Paxton of the of the Red Sox uh, is injured once again. Uh, injury-riddled second half of the career after uh, having a good next couple uh, after a good couple of years, James Paxton is hurt once again. And it, and the other thing that I want to talk about, other, I guess you want to call it injury news. Araldus uh, Chapman hurt. Araldus Chapman uh, fell down at his house and split his lip open. Uh, this is the second weird injury in a row for for Araldus Chapman. Uh, first. Uh, at the end of the season, Araldus Chapman missed some time because he got a tattoo infection. He got infected from a tattoo. And this time he fell down at his house, split his lip open, and got some stitches. That's not what bothers me. What bothers me is in the tweet, it says Araldus Chapman split his lip open, required some stitches, and he's going to try and throw and try and play catch at, at spring training. What do you mean? Try to throw. Does Raldis Chapman have some new lip ball? Is he now starting to throw with his mouth? Because if he's throwing with his mouth, that's a whole new meaning to spitball. Is that a foreign substance? Because uh, I think we're going to need to look at the rule book for that. No, for serious. That's ridiculous. Your your lip is split open. That has nothing to do with the fact that you are... Uh, that, that, that has nothing to do with throwing a baseball. So why are we even entertaining the notion of, oh, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to play catch today. Get out there, play catch. Your mouth hurts. Oh, well. Like, big deal. I, I really don't understand some of these players. Like, I'm going to try and play catch today because my my eyeball hurts. What? That, ah, I don't understand it. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, anyway, I, off of the AL, off of my stool of, or my soapbox of, players that get stupid injuries. Let's get to the NL preview. We're going to dive right into it. As I did last uh, last year or last episode, we're going to be going in reverse order of each of these leagues from last place to first place in these divisions. We're going to start at the NL East and we're going to start with the Nationals. The Nationals Last year, I mean, again, they didn't really have anybody all that exciting. They didn't add anybody all that exciting. Key additions are Jaime Candelario from the uh, from the Tigers, Corey Dickerson, Dominic Smith from the Mets, and Trevor Williams, also from the Mets. Um, they are probably not going to be great again. There really isn't much to talk about. There's no real upgrades. Um, things to look for if you're a Nats fan. Uh, you're looking for another season from their young catcher, Kiebert Ruiz. Uh, he's a pretty entertaining catcher to look at, uh, offense type of catcher. Uh, the the debut of Joey Manessis. Now, Joey Manessis is a rookie, um, a highly touted prospect in the national system. And if I remember correctly, is projected in his rookie season to hit like almost 30 home runs. 26, 27 home runs, I believe he's set to hit. And in my opinion, that's, that's pretty darn, that's pretty lofty expectations here for the... 
uh, for the rookie. And then at the same time, we're also looking at uh, more Josiah Gray development. And man, do I feel bad for Josiah Gray because he's trying to, uh, this young guy is trying to develop in a Washington national system that has no other pitching. So he's forced to become the ace. He is forced to become the ace of this system. Uh, you know, Josiah Gray is the ace of the system. And then you have Patrick Corbin after that. Uh, Trevor Williams, I feel like, will give give the Nats a pretty good season. Um, and then you're also looking for maybe a resurgence from Mackenzie Gore. Uh, Mackenzie Gore was a very highly touted prospect in the Padres system, only to come up and disappoint for the Padres and ended up being traded from the Padres to the Nationals last season in August of 2020 of the 2022 season um and then after that you really don't have anybody on the offense like I said you have the uh you have the debut of Joey Manessas. he is projected to hit 26 homers this year probably the most electrifying player that you're looking at in this lineup uh, after that, there really isn't anything. There's not much to talk about when it comes to the Nationals. Uh, they took a step back from their World Series win. They, you know, they don't have Bryce Harper anymore. Don't have Anthony Rendon. Don't have any of those key guys. Steven Strasburg. My heart goes out. Steven Strasburg. He keeps trying to come back. He keeps getting injured. I really think it's time for Steven Strasburg to just hang up the hat and call it good. Uh, he keeps getting injured. He has so many problems and so many problems that he can't bounce back from as a pitcher that it's just time for him to retire. My heart goes out to him. It's not really his fault, but it's time, Steven Strasburg, to hang it up and call it a call it a career. Uh, moving on from the Nationals, we're going to go to the Miami Marlins. The Miami Marlins are one of those teams that I always feel like every year they're going to shock you, they're going to do really well, and then they end up disappointing. I always feel like they're going to be sneaky good, maybe sneak into that you know battle for the second playoff position, and then they always end up second to last. It never fails. Uh, the Miami Marlins this year were very, very busy. Uh, their general manager, Kim Ng, uh, came out and said that they were listening in on some of their uh some of their pitchers and a lot of their pitchers were available outside of probably Sandy Alcantara were probably available and the other notable notable thing over the offseason was the exit of Derek Jeter uh at, in their front office and now he's going to be joining the front, the Fox broadcast system which I thought was very interesting side note uh Derek Jeter Going into the Fox broadcast system with Alex Rodriguez, I think is going to be a very interesting dynamic there. Uh, so now you've got two Yankees and a Red Sox. You've got A-Rod and you've got Jeter and you've got uh, David Ortiz. Then you've got Pedro Martinez and you've got Frank Thomas, uh, along with you know other guys that that come on there every once in a while. You got Curtis Granderson and uh, uh, Jimmy Rollins and people like that that come in and also talk and also talk on that broadcast system, but. Derek Jeter set to be on the Fox broadcast team with Alex Rodriguez, who, I mean, if if you followed baseball history, you you know that they kind of have a, a strained relationship. There's a there's a weird sort of uh strain that goes on in that relationship with with A-Rod and Jeter with just A-Rod's antics and how Jeter operates. It's really interesting. I did not see Jeter going to the Fox broadcasting booth. Anyway, uh the Miami Marlins. So the Miami Marlins, apart from their front office, was very busy in the offseason. Their key additions, they traded their uh, their second starting pitcher, their SP2, Pablo Sandoval, to the Twins for first for contact hitting first baseman, second baseman, Luis Arias. Luis Arias 
statistically anyway, is the most likely hitter that we've seen in, since the last 400 batting average season to hit 400. He's the most likely person to hit 400 in a season. That's how good of contact Luis Arias is. Now, for those of you that are probably new to the game and maybe you're new to statistics and you don't know what batting average is. So batting average is essentially, it's a decimal. It's essentially what, uh, it's the amount of times a hitter gets hit or gets a hit in a total number of plate appearances or a total number of at-bats. So the batter steps up to the plate. He can either he can do one of three things. He can get a hit, he can get out, or he can walk, right? Walks don't count towards batting average. But hits and outs do count towards batting average. You get a hit, your batting average goes up. You get out, your batting average goes down. It's as simple as that. Now, it's essentially a percentage. You take the number of hits and you divide it by the number of at-bats and you... and that number is smaller, so you get a decimal, right? So whenever I say something like a 260 batting average, let's just say, okay, 260 batting average, that means his batting average is a .260, okay? And uh, you can also work that as a percent. So 260, right, is is 26%. So a good batting average is normally, we're looking at 300. 300 is normally that artificial or that uh, stereotypical good batting average. We want 300 hitters, right? The higher the batting average, the better. Now, we have not seen a 400 season, a .400, 40% of the time, a 400 season since Ted Williams did it in the 60s, okay? Now, it's very, very, very difficult to hit a 400 season, obviously, since we, it hasn't been done in since the 60s. Luis Arias statistically is the most likely person to hit the next 400 season. Um, I've always liked Luis Arias. He's not a typical first baseman, but his knees, with his knee injuries that he's had, that's really the only position that he could play besides DH is first base. Uh, so you have Luis Arias. You have Gene Segura, going to play shortstop probably. You've got Jazz Chisholm. Probably moving, and they're saying he's going to move out to center field, and he's claimed, Jazz Chisholm has claimed, that he's going to come off of injury and win a gold glove in center field. Jazz Chisholm, the new cover athlete for the MLB The Show video game, is a really interesting, I really like Jazz Chisholm, so it'll be interesting to see. From a baseball player's perspective, it is very, very difficult to change positions and hit well. So Jazz Chisholm of the Marlins has been an infielder. He's been shortstop second base. Okay, his entire career with the Marlins. He has never played outfield before. They're asking him to go out and play in the outfield. And it's going to be really interesting because as when you're learning a new position, your mind is so trained on trying to figure out this new position that sometimes it messes you, it messes you up at the plate, right? So your batting kind of suffers from that. Or if you're playing out of position and you're trying to figure out how to field the position, if you have fielding woes, it kind of translates to your hitting. If you have hitting woes, sometimes it translates to the fielding, you know, vice versa. So it'll be very, very interesting to see if Jazz Chisholm, one, can perform well in center field, stay on the field, and continue to hit like he like he like we know he can like we've seen previously. 
So that'll be another development to watch. Other key additions, you have Johnny Cueto uh, coming in and being part of that pitching staff. Johnny Cueto looked like he was on his way out and looks was looking to be on his way of being being ir irrelevant in MLB circles. And then he came back from he came to the White Sox rotation and proved to be serviceable. Actually, was one of the better pitchers in the White Sox system. So the Miami Marlins said, "Come on in. We got an opening. We don't have Pablo. Uh, we don't have Pablo Sandoval anymore. Not Sandoval." Pablo Lopez anymore, and we are going to uh, give you a shot as our second starting pitcher in the rotation. Uh, in the in the bullpen, you also have Matt Barnes from the Red from the Red Sox. They traded the A's for former highly touted prospect AJ Puck, and you have JT Chargois coming over from the Rays. Um, they got a great pitching staff still, but honestly, after Luis Arias, they have no offense. They still don't have any offense. Um, they need players like Jazz Chisholm. I've already talked about it to step up. They're another highly touted pitching prospect, Max Meyer, is out this season with with Tommy John. Maybe you may with, with one prospect out, you may see a comeback from another prospect by the name of Sixto Sanchez. Sixto Sanchez was a very very highly touted prospect. Looked like he was going to come up and be kind of a staple in the in the starting rotation for the Marlins, and then he got injured. He had a big shoulder injury, he tore up his shoulder, and he has not thrown in a major league game still ever. And it's been two years since he's played a professional baseball game. And a lot of this is, there's there's a lot of suspect to this. Um, there's been a lot of reports that he didn't necessarily follow his, his training regimen, his recovery regimen that they had him do, and it set him back a lot because he never, he didn't really stick to his, his workout program. And so there's a lot of questions on if Sixto Sanchez really just really wants to play anymore um, because it doesn't seem like he's giving much effort for his recovery. And at the same time, he was also, it, it also looks like he slimmed down because the other criticism of Sixto Sanchez is while he's a good pitcher, he was overweight. Now we've seen this before. You know, we've talked about, you know, Jabba Chamberlain comes to mind of the Yankees, you know, and other 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 teams as well, but the one that I can think about right now is the Yankees. Jabba Chamberlain was overweight, and he seemed to uh, be a serviceable enough pitcher, a pretty good pitcher. CeCe Sabathia is another one. CeCe Sabathia was a big dude the second half of his career and ended up being one of the better pitchers in MLB history. He's a, you know, a really good Brewers pitcher. He was really good uh, for uh, the Yankees as well. So, you know, Maybe being overweight is not necessarily an indicator of his success, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of concerning. Um, but it sounds like Sixto Sanchez is on the verge of maybe getting on the mound again, starting a throwing program, and maybe becoming relevant again. So we may see a Sixto Sanchez comeback. He slimmed down a little bit. Um, but he it's an uphill battle. When you look at baseball history, you don't really see anybody really coming back and being relevant after missing two consecutive professional seasons. The only, the best pitcher that I can see that, you know, was, that did the best after coming back from two consecutive seasons of not throwing at all is a relief pitcher in the uh, Yankee system, uh, Jonathan Loisaga. And he's become a pretty good uh, option there in the bullpen for the Yankees. But what I'm trying to say is it's very few and 
few and far between, that that happens. So Sixto Sanchez is an uphill battle. Um, again, this has a potential to be a sneaky, sneaky team with their pitching, but they usually disappoint, and it's mainly because they have no offense. So I don't... And they also have a new manager, Don Mattingly, is out. And, uh, you know, Don Mattingly is going to be in the uh, in the Toronto coaching staff now and uh, no longer manager for the, uh, the, the Marlins. So you also have that. There's a lot of changes going on. So I don't expect the Marlins to be all that good and probably finished more towards the bottom of the NL East again. Uh, moving on, we've got the Phillies, uh, the World Series runner-up Phillies coming out of nowhere. The Phillies are now aggressive. The Phillies are going to be all in. Now, uh, they, they already have a great offense with Bryce Harper, with um, Kyle Schwarber, the NL home run leader. Uh, you, you have Reese Hoskins. You have a lot of good, good, and then you have good pitching. And they added this year as well. Uh, they added Trey Turner, big signing for Trey Turner at shortstop, and then uh, Taiwan Walker in the starting pit in the starting pitching rotation uh, behind Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. And then in the bullpen, you've got two closers, Craig Kimbrell and Gregory Soto. Craig Kimbrell coming over from the uh, White Sox, Dodgers. I think he came from the Dodgers. And then uh, Gregory Soto coming from the Tigers. Trey Turner was a huge upgrade at shortstop. Um, it makes a very, very strong type top five of the lineup. Uh, the top five uh, hitters, one through five in the lineup uh, for the Phillies. You're looking at Trey Turner at leadoff, so number one. Kyle Schwarber at number two. Reese Hoskins at number three. The catcher, JT Romuto at number four. And Nick Castellanos at number five. In an offensive park, you know, that is the Great American Ballpark in Philly, this lineup is set to do really well. Um, and then at the bottom of the, the bottom of the lineup doesn't look too bad either. You got Alec Bohm, Bryson Stoke, Brandon Marsh, all um, all projected to hit double digit home runs. Alec Bohm is projected to hit a 272 batting average. So you know you, you could you could see a good offense here from Philadelphia, and then a good um, starting pitching rotation. Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, they always eat up innings pretty good. Uh, Aaron Nola is set to. Uh, is projected to have over 200 innings. Zach Wheeler is projected to have 190. Uh, you have Taiwan Walker, who has been a serviceable pitcher, has been hot. He's kind of goes back and forth, very streaky, very streaky, kind of hot, and then uh, gets rocked, and then goes back to being pretty good again. And then you have Ranger Suarez, who had, I believe, a pretty good season last year, if I remember correctly. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, a, a 3.65 ERA and 155 innings pitched. Not bad. Uh, pretty pretty decent. I'll take that. Pretty serviceable. Um, and then their, oh, their bullpen is going to be interesting to watch. Their bullpen, I, I saw a... Um, I saw a stat where the Phillies bullpen is set to be the highest walk. How, how, how do you... They have the highest walk rate. They walk the most batters collectively um, with the way it's made up right now. And on top of that, you have Craig Kimbrell in there. Gregory Soto walked a lot of guys. Craig Kimbrell has kind of fallen apart the last couple of years, hasn't been very serviceable as a closer. He keeps getting a lot of chances, but has not really been um, fantastic when it comes to closing games. Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez walked a lot of guys. Jose Alvarado has walked a lot of guys. You have a lot of hard-throwing guys that walk a lot of people. And when you get a number of those built up, 
It doesn't bode well when it comes to pitching staffs, and especially at the end of the game. So it'll be interesting to watch if the bullpen can maybe kind of tamper down when it comes to these walks and um, become a, a shutdown bullpen. They have the potential of being a shutdown bullpen, but they just walk too many guys. Um, and then on top of that, you also have the... Um, um, we have Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper is out right now with Tommy John surgery. Um, so he will not be here for at least the first half of the season and is looking to come back in the second half of the season. But be prepared to be out of Bryce Harper, who is your central guy, essentially, in um, in this offensive lineup. Have him out in the first half of the of the season. If the Phillies can stay relevant and Bryce Harper comes back and does Bryce Harper things and does really well, this could be a very scary offensive lineup and they could sneak their way back into the NL bracket of the playoffs. The next team is the Mets. The Mets um, are all in. They are trying to win. They're trying to get these guys, uh, you know, compile a lineup that's going to be really good. Um, they were very busy this offseason. Um, big subtraction in, well, it depends on how you look at it. Big subtraction in Jacob deGrom and that he's really good. But at the same time, he was not on the field all the time. They made a lot of changes here in the offseason. Their key additions, they re-signed Brandon Nimmo, which is an underratedly good signing. I've always liked Brandon Nimmo. He's never gotten enough attention, I think. He's a, he's a good good hitter. He's not a big power hitter, but he's a good, good on-base guy. You have Omar Nevarez, pretty good hitting catcher. Tommy Pham, serviceable off the bench. Justin Verlander is set to be the ace. The uh, previous year's Cy Young winner, set to be the ace up there with uh, Max Scherzer at number two. They And on the pitching side, they also signed um, Japanese, the biggest signing here probably, um, Kodai Senga. Okay, and in Kodai, Kodai Senga, Ready? Has pitched 10 years in the Japanese league, okay? And has been very, very good. Over 1,300 innings pitched. He had a he had a record of 104 and 51. So he's a very winning pitcher. A 2.42 ERA, 2.42 ERA. So ERA is earned run average. So that is how many runs a player, um, a pitcher gives up in a nine inning span. Okay, so there's there's a mathematical formula there. Um, another development of this podcast is I might uh, I'll probably have a series where I'll explain different stuff. Um, but you want a lower ERA, obviously. You want to limit the amount of runs. Two point four two ERA is pretty darn good. Usually three is about what we're looking for to be good. If you're in the twos, it's a really good season. So two point four two ERA is good. One point oh nine WHIP, ten strikeouts per nine. And uh, 1,486 Ks or strikeouts in the Japanese league for 10 years. Good pitcher. Now, the thing with Asian the, 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 the people, players that come from the Asian leagues, the Korean league, the Japanese league, it's one way or the other. Either they come over and do really good, or it takes them a few years to get adjusted, i.e., Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani, the first few years, was not great, did not produce. And he, it only took him a couple of years to figure it out. But you also have people, people like Masahiro Tanaka, formerly of the Yankees, who also did, who came over and did really well. Uh, last year, you had Seiya Suzuki. Seiya Suzuki came out, did really well, was an on-base guy, but kind of faltered at the end. So usually hitters don't do as well coming over to America. Pitchers 
usually do okay. They usually end up being pretty serviceable and pretty okay. So that'll be an interesting um, line here when we get to, um, you know, interesting storyline for the Mets there as well. On the pitching side, they also signed Jose Quintana for the back end of the uh, back end of the pitching rotation. Uh, pretty serviceable back end of the rotation guy. And then for the bullpen, the relief pitchers, you also got David Robertson, who was very serviceable for the Phillies. Brooks Raley, good signing there. And Alicia Hernandez from the Marlins. Any pitcher that that was serviceable on the Marlins is probably going to be pretty good on your squad because the Marlins seem to be pumping out all kinds of pitchers. Um, the breakdown, same good offense as last year. Retooled their pitching staff a little bit. Verlander and Scherzer are a very solid one-two punch on paper. But the problem is the starting pitchers, are, the starting the starting pitching staff is old in baseball terms. Four of the five starting pitchers are over 34 years old. Now, lately, what we've been seeing is older pitchers seem to have more success. So maybe that's what the Mets are banking on is older pitchers seem to have more success. But you have Justin Verlander as your ace, 40 years old. He's banking on, or he's getting to be 40 years old, or he is 40 years old, somewhere around there. Then you have Max Scherzer, who's closing in on 40 himself. So can they hold up? Can they stay on the field? And then the other storyline is how will Senga, Kodai Senga do in his first year in the MLB? Those would be the things to look for for the Mets. And then in first place in the NL East, the Braves. The Braves uh, did very well. They ended up catching up to the Mets. The Mets kind of fell apart at the end of the year, and the Braves overtook them um, only to be uh, shockingly uh, eliminated in the championship series by the Phillies. Their key additions, they traded the A's for Sean Murphy, um, very good offensive and defensive catcher, very solid catcher for that lineup and for the pitching staff as well. And then in the bullpen, they also got Lucas Lukey, formerly of the Yankees. Now, they're looking to make another deep playoff push. They're looking good. For, uh, they're looking for offensive and defensive production from Sean Murphy behind the plate, um, replacing uh, Travis Darnot uh, back there. And uh, Travis Darno was a good offensive catcher, but I would say Sean Murphy's probably a safer bet, both offensively and defensively. Um, you're also looking for production from the rookies that they had last year, mainly um, Michael... Michael Harris. Michael Harris it was a very good rookie. Surprise rookie. Came out last year and did very, very well in the middle of that lineup. Um, stepped up with a struggling Ronald Acuna Jr. at the beginning of the year. He's set to bat fifth and play center field. Um, projected to hit a 274 average and 21 homers. So, But there's something called a sophomore slump. After your second year... Um, you know, after a good rookie season, usually rookies take a step back and they, they call it a sophomore slump and they normally don't do as well in the second year as they did in the first year. So can Michael Harris produce two years in a row? The other thing on the pitching side, Spencer Strider, Kyle Wright, both had very good seasons last year for the Braves. Uh, on top of, you know, you have other pitchers there, uh, such as, uh, Max Freed, uh, Charlie Morton, who's almost 40, and then Ian Anderson at the back end there. Max Freed is set to be the ace, but Kyle Wright, Spencer Strider are the ones that you're probably looking at here to be good pitchers again to nail down that pitching rotation. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, this is also the first going to be the first full season, it seems like, from Vaughn Grissom. Vaughn Grissom 
is another prospect that or is a shortstop prospect who is set to take over for Dansby Swanson, the exit of Dansby Swanson. Going to be another interesting um Another interesting storyline here. Will they be? Will Von Grissom be able to fill in Dansby Swanson's shoes? Uh, Dan's, uh, Von Grissom came up at the end of the year uh, and actually hit very well. High average. Um, not a big power guy, but will get on base. He's set to bat ninth and uh, projected to have a 262 average, which is pretty serviceable for a rookie, and 10 homers, so a handful of homers as well. Um, so. I would be interested to see. And then you're looking for Ronald Acuna. Can Ronald Acuna Jr. step up and be the Ronald Acuna that we were looking at before the knee injury? He's projected to hit 30 home runs. Um, I mean, these these first three, Ronald Acuna Jr. projected to hit 30 home runs. Matt Olson, batting second, projected to hit 36 home runs. Austin Riley at third, projected to hit 36 home runs. So you're looking at a lot of power coming out of this Braves lineup. Can they... Uh, can they produce that, and make another deep playoff push. I think they will. Um, I don't foresee anything, I mean, barring just an epic collapse of injuries and stuff like that, I think the Braves will get into the playoffs. Let's go to the NL Central. The NL Central, the Pirates, uh, the Pirates are a flat-out mess. Uh, you know, they're pretty much at this point the laughing stock of baseball circles. They are not run very well. They're cheap. They get rid of everybody that's good and they don't want to pay anybody that's good. That's why you're looking for, uh, I don't know, your stars like Brian Reynolds are looking to leave. Um, and it seems like it's because Brian Reynolds wanted to actually stay in Pittsburgh and wanted to restructure his contract and have a certain amount of money and the Pirates were nowhere close to the money that he wanted. So now he's requesting a trade. So we'll see if he gets traded at the, in the middle of the year. Um, key additions for the Pirates, you've got G-Man Choi coming over from the Rays, uh, and the return of Andrew McCutcheon. Andrew McCutcheon is coming back to the Pirates, presumably probably going to be his last season um, in the MLB, and he's coming back to where it all started. Andrew McCutcheon, obviously, in his in his prime, his MVP years, he was a Pirate, and he's loved and he's beloved in the Pirate fan base, so it's good for him to come back, come full circle. And then Carlos Santana, a power on base type of uh, type of first baseman. He's going to get on base, lower average with some with some pop, with some power. So it'll be interesting. But on the the team is still bad. The team is terrible. Um, it's got a good farm system. Has one of the best farms, I believe, if I remember correctly, according to Fangraphs. It is the third best farm system in the MLB. But it always squanders it every year. And on top of that, you've got Bob Nutting continuing, which is the owner, continuing to complain about how the league spends more than they want to, and that we want a salary cap because the league spends more than we want to. Guess what? Bob Nutting, come out with some more money, and then you won't have that problem. Um, the main storylines are pretty much going to be McCutcheon's presumably last year in the MLB. He hasn't announced that yet. And at the same time, can uh, and Brian Reynolds' trade rumors will be huge coming around, uh, coming around the trade deadline. And then the first full season of their shortstop prospect, highly anticipated O'Neill Cruz. We saw quite a bit of O'Neill Cruz last year. Very, very, uh, has a lot of power, has a very strong arm over at shortstop. Got hurt a little bit last year. Can he come can he come and produce for the first full season? Will he be the new face of the Pirates? Will they start building the team around O'Neill Cruz? It'll be interesting to see that as well. Going to the Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati Reds didn't really do anything huge. They added Will Myers from the Reds or from the Padres. I'm sorry. And then, but after that, there's not really anything to speak of. No, they're not. Re I'm not expecting them to really compete. 
Um, they're looking for a rebound season from Jonathan India. Jonathan India got hurt quite a bit um, and was out for quite a bit of the season. And you have the debut of their number five prospect, Spencer Steer. Um, Spear has an above average bat in the minors, but a below average glove in the infield uh, first, second, and third, it looks like he's going to play the outfield. They're going to try and get him in the outfield. But they do have a future to look forward to. They have a top 10 farm system, according to fa uh, according to Fangraft. So they have some they have some prospects in the wake, and uh, they can either pull them up and you know start building a team from these prospects, or they can start trading them away and trying to get more MLB-ready talent to try and compete. Next one is the Cubs. The Cubs fans, you get two different Cubs fans. You have the realist Cubs fans, and then you have the weird Cubs fans, the, the delusional Cubs fans, who think they're going to make the playoffs. I'm sorry, the Cubs fan, the, 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 the Cubs team that I see right now is not built to make the playoffs, although they were very busy in this offseason, adding big addition from the Braves. They signed Dansby Swanson. They also signed Trey Mancini from the Astros. Cody Bellinger is looking for a rebound season from the uh, from the Dodgers. You have Eric Hosmer coming over from the Red Sox. Uh, Tucker Barnhart will be behind the plate, and then you also add uh, Jamison Tyone to the starting pitching rotation and Michael Fulmer to the bullpen. They had a very, very big, uh, very busy offseason. A great get with Dansby Swanson. Um, looking like they may try to build another team around Dansby Swanson. Um, but history says that he'll take... Um, that he'll take a step back in his first year, mainly because he signed a big contract. Usually guys that sign big contracts tend to not be productive the first year because they're getting used to a new environment and then they have this pressure with a big contract and that they have a lot of pressure to try and produce. And, you know, usually they kind of falter under the pressure. So it'll be, and they don't hold up to expectations. So it'll be very interesting to see what Dansby Swanson does there. Bellinger, Cody Bellinger, um, Huge fall from Grace from his MVP season is looking to bounce back here, have a rebound season with the Cubs. Um, besides that, there's not much competition gonna come from the Cubs. I expect I really expect another third place finish. They're not as bad as the Reds, they're not as bad as the as the Pirates, but they're not as good as the Brewers or the Cardinals. So speaking of the Brewers, the Brewers are always competitive. They when it comes to pitching, their pitching always holds them in and their offense always holds them down. So you've got um, key additions. William Contreras is going to be behind the plate, traded from the Braves. Uh, you got a signing of Jesse Winker coming over from, or a trade, I, I'm sorry, a trade of Jesse Winker coming over from the uh, Mar or Mariners. And then you've got Brian Anderson going to also be um, an addition to the offense. Then you have Wade Miley for the starting pitching. And then you've also got a smattering of bullpen help as well. They've got good offensive additions. They did try to um, come up with... Um, some offensive, some offensive stop gaps here to try and get, to try and up the offense production here. But, and they already have a good pitching staff, so I would expect the pitching staff to be good. But on the pitching side, very interesting development. Um, Corbin Burns went into arbitration with the Brewers in an argument essentially to, you know, essentially what arbitration is, is the, uh, the player says, I think I deserve this much money for this year or, you know, in, in this year of arbitration. And then this, and then the team says, no, we think you're worth this much. We don't agree. And so they, and so they have a third party, 
um, litigator come in and they present their both sides, and then the uh, the third party decides who wins and who loses their arbitration case, and whoever wins, they that that player gets played that gets paid that salary. Apparently, the Brewers came out and according to Corbin Burns, anyway, came out and just rubbed it all in Corbin Burns's face and drug him through the mud and said, you know, there are reasons why we didn't produce the way we did and it's all Corbin Burns' fault, this and that and the next thing, which is a usually common tactic when it comes to teams. They usually, you know, arbitration really is the time where the, the team comes up with all kinds of things that are wrong with you so that you can get paid less. It's a common practice, but but apparently whatever Corbin Burns or whatever the Bruins said about Corbin Burns, Corbin Burns did not like it. So he has a very turbulent relationship now with the Brewers system. So it'll be an interesting development going forward. Will they be looking at trading Corbin, Corbin Burns going into the uh, trade deadline? It'll be interesting. And also, this could be a possible time for Adrian Hauser to get his shot at the rotation the back end of the rotation anyway, um, you know, usually we haven't been able to see, Adrian Hauser has been a very good pitcher, he could be a very serviceable starting pitcher, but it's always been crowded, you have uh, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff who are great pitchers in their own right, and then you had Freddie Peralta who's had good seasons, and then Eric Lauer who's had good seasons as well, now Wade Miley comes in from the Cubs, um, was signed from the Cubs this year. He's also been in the bullpen, so you could see Adrian Hauser. If if uh, Wade Miley doesn't do what is expected, you could see a flop there between Adrian Hauser and Wade Miley. So I would be on the lookout for that as well. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I don't see the Brewers overtaking the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals are probably the class of this of this division so far. Um, I would expect them to battle for the second NL wild card or for the for the NL wild card, but I don't see them becoming uh, the NL Central champion. But going over to the NL Central champion Cardinals, uh, not a very big offseason, but they that that tends to be normal for the Cardinals. They tend to look towards their farm. They tend to look within their farm system and their prospects to produce and become really good. And they have a very, very good development system down there in St. Louis. One big addition, though, they did sign catcher Wilson Contreras to fill in the shoes for Yadier Molina, who has since retired and is now coaching Puerto Rico for the up, uh, team Puerto Rico for the upcoming World Baseball Classic. Um, Contreras has a lot of big shoes to fill in with Yadier Molina retiring. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how the pitching staff will do in the first year without Yadier Molina. Statistics have shown that when Yadier Molina is by the, behind the plate compared to when other to, to when any other catcher is behind the plate in Yadier Molina's tenure, um, the pitcher the pitching staff has an ERA one whole run lower. Than that of and uh, the the pitching staff without Yadier Molina, so it'll be very interesting to see if Wilson Contreras can come in and do some sort of production, um, comparable production to Yadier Molina. At the same time, you're also looking at the debut of Alec Burleson. Alec Burleson is the number is the ninety first ranked ninety first prospect in MLB and the number five Cardinals prospect. Um, he absolutely rocketed through the minor leagues. It was only in the minor, was in single A, uh, double A, and triple A all last season and is set to uh, crack the 
major league lineup this year, and he's competing for a corner outfield spot here in spring training. And he could do it because he's looking at competing with people like uh, Tyler O'Neill um, and people like that. Tyler O'Neill is, a, in my opinion, he's kind of a disappointing bat. He strikes out a lot. Dude is huge, absolutely huge. But I, and Dylan Carlson, who struggles to hit the last few seasons. So I could really see Alec Burleson come up and uh, maybe take one of the spots away from one of these guys if they slip up. Uh, you also got, I mean, Staples in there. You've got uh, Tommy Edmond, uh, very good up at the top of the lineup. Stolen base. Paul Goldschmidt coming off a fantastic season. Nolan Arenado coming off a fantastic season. Uh, Lars Newtbar coming off a fantastic season. And then you've got uh, good, uh, good starting pitching from... Uh, Adam Wainwright, who's 41, probably going to be his last year. Uh, Miles Michaelis, you've got Jordan Montgomery, Jack Flaherty. You've got some good starting pitching, got some good bullpen. I would foresee the Cardinals winning the NL Central again. I don't see them really being um, dethroned by anybody. Moving over now to the highly contested NL West. The NL West is going to be very, very interesting um, besides the Rockies. The Rockies didn't do anything. They're a terribly run franchise. Uh, if you want to hear my my uh, my rant on how terrible the Rockies are run, you can check uh, one of my trade one of my trade deadline episodes um, previously and in, in previous seasons. Uh, it the, the Rockies are just not run very well. I'm not. I don't have time to get on this to get on that soapbox again. No real key additions. Didn't really add anybody. You're looking for a full season from Chris Bryant. That's about it. That's really all you're looking for. Is hopefully Chris Bryant stays on the field and produces. After that, there really isn't much from the Rockies. I would expect another last place finish in the NL West. The Diamondbacks, though, the Arizona Diamondbacks, very opposite from the. From the Rockies, they're a very interesting team. Busy offseason. Uh, they added Lourdes Gurriel Jr. from the Blue Jays. Uh, a trade. So they traded, um, what's his name? Dalton Varsho for Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Gabriel Moreno. Gabriel Moreno is going to set to be the backup catcher. And uh, he's a very young catcher um, and is hoping to produce here for this young Diamondbacks team. They also added veteran Evan Longoria to come off the bench, and they also added Kyle Lewis from the... Uh, Kyle Lewis came from the Mariners, and then Andrew Chafin in the bullpen as well. This is a very, very interesting team to look at. They have lots and lots and lots of young talent. You have Corbin Carroll, who is one of the top prospects in the MLB and the number one prospect in, in the uh, Diamondbacks organization. Jake McCarthy, in my opinion... Under uh, a sleeper guy to look at for to break out and have a great season this year is Jake McCarthy. Jake McCarthy has underratedly had very good seasons in the off in the uh, in the minor leagues and came up and did pretty well when it came to the major leagues. This is going to be his first full season here. It'll be really interesting to see how he does. You also have Alec Thomas came up and was very good uh, last year, and then you have Gabriel Moreno, and then you have Zach Gallen, who's the ace of the sta staff as well, 26 years old. They have a lot of young talent to build around, and now you have some veteran presence, Madison Bumgarner, Evan Longoria, people at Lord Escurial Jr., people of that nature. In my opinion, the D-backs could be a very sneaky 
a contender for the wild card here, but I think they are going to be just a notch below. I don't necessarily think they are going to com they're going to make the playoffs, but I think they're one step away from making the playoffs with this young squad that they got going on. And I think they're going to leap over the next team I'm going to talk about, the San Francisco Giants. Although the San Francisco Giants were very very busy this year, um, they added uh, so they <laughs> they missed out on two big signings. Well, I don't know if you want to say missed out. They missed out on two signings. They've got uh, they missed out on Aaron Judge, although he was a Giant for like three hours, and then it was <laughs> falsely reported that he signed with the Giants, and then it came, the true report came out that he signed with the Yankees, uh, and then they signed Carlos Correa, looked at his medicals, and decided they didn't want Carlos Correa anymore. So that they so they went out and added Mitch Haniger. They added Michael Conforto from the Mets, uh, and then the, for their starting pitching, you've got Sean Manaya, Ross Stripling, and then in the bullpen, you have the um, first ever twin brother duo now in the bullpen. Taylor Rogers is coming over and joining his brother Tyler Rogers in the bullpen. Um, Hanniger and Conforto, both very solid offensive, uh, offensive pickups there in the outfield. And then I also think Manaya and Stripling will do pretty well in San Francisco. San, Fran uh, San Francisco ballpark is what's called a pitcher's park. So it leans more towards the, uh, it favors pitchers more than it does hitters. And I think Stripling is, uh, Stripling has already had success uh, elsewhere. He had success in LA as a Dodger, and then he had more success in Toronto as a Blue Jay. Sean Manaya was successful as an A, but you know, he doesn't throw all that hard. So, I think a bigger ballpark and a more pitchers ballpark like um, like Giants like the Giants might serve him well. Plus, it's a change of scenery. But I like the Diamondbacks too much. I think the Diamondbacks will pass them this year, and we will see. Uh, they didn't do enough. I think. I think we'll see the Diamondbacks jump over them this year, and the Giants finish fourth. Now we're going over to Cal. Uh, we'll stay in California and go to San Diego. Uh, San Diego Padres. San Diego Padres were very busy this year. They're very interesting to now the the Diamondbacks are very interesting to watch because they're a young team who's looking to come up and 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 compete. The Padres they really put they really put themselves on the map last year and I think they're set to really put in a dogfight this year, not only for the NL West but for the World Series. They added some key. They had. I mean, we've we've seen this before from the Padres, big signings and hopefully high and high expectations. But you're looking at the signing of Xander Bogarts. They've signed Nelson Cruz. They signed Matt Carpenter, and then for the pitching uh, uh, pitching side, they signed Michael Waka and Seth Lugo. Bogarts is going to be a huge signing. Now, again, I've already talked about the big you know the big contracts, and he may take a step back. But Bogarts is a huge excuse me, is a huge signing. And then Fernando Tatis Jr. will return in a month from his suspension from PEDs. But they're looking to move Fernando Tatis out to the outfield because of his injury troubles at shortstop. They want him, they want to move him out to the outfield and hopefully he's productive out there in the outfield as well. And then Machado signing a big extension. I don't think that'll bother him because he's already signed a big contract with, so it's really nothing new for him. Um, but Machado's extension will get that out of the way. The one thing that I'm not excited about is the Matt Carpenter signing. Matt Carpenter had a had a resurgent year last year with the Yankees, but Yankee Stadium and Petco Park are two very different parks. Um, Yankee Stadium, very, very good for left-handed hitters. 
Petco is a pitcher's park. I, I don't, I think Matt Carpenter is going to take a step back this year. Michael Walker, though, very underrated, very underrated good addition. Um, honestly, this offensive lineup right now, I wouldn't want to face. This offensive lineup is scary. And it's a very good bullpen, decent starting pitching with you Darvish at the top and Blake Snell uh, second. Michael Walker will be in the middle there. It, it, and, I'm going to talk about the Dodgers here. The Dodgers, they've got a chink in the armor. The Padres, this is the Padres' chance to dethrone the Dodgers here for the NL West. This will be a very interesting NL West, competitive NL West, I think, nonetheless, as long as the Padres stay out of their way, stay out of their own way. Looking at the Dodgers, the Dodgers subtract a big subtraction with Trey Turner moving to the Phillies. I've already talked about him earlier in the podcast. And then you've got... Uh, the signing of J.D. Martinez, David Peralta, Miguel Rojas, and Noah Syndergaard for the, on the pitching side. So compared to seasons prior, this was a very slow offseason. The big signing here is J.D. Martinez, but after that, you, you did, they didn't really sign anybody all that big. Um, like I said, big setback in the offense with, uh, with Trey Turner, and that was, to, that was going to set up Gavin Lux's opportunity to get some consistent playing time and show that he can really, really produce for this Dodgers lineup, and he gets injured in spring training. Tours ACL, out for the season. Now, I've seen a couple Dodgers fans uh, go, oh, that's no big deal. We'll just have somebody else thrown in there. Um, I'm sorry to tell you this. It is a big deal. Pull your head out of the sand. It is a big deal for the Dodgers here. Because your likely, your likely replace, replacements at this point is going to be Miguel Rojas and Chris Taylor, who are not as good as Gavin Lux and will not and will not um, duplicate the production of Trey Turner at shortstop. So now this scary lineup that we've seen from the Dodgers recently is not as is not as scary. Now it it still is good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's bad, but you have Mookie Betts. Freddie Freeman, Will Smith, you have Max Muncie, who, I mean, he's a good on-base guy, he's got some pop, but it's a low-average guy, you have J.D. Martinez, who strikes out a lot, could be good, could not be good, then the then the bottom of this lineup, David Peralta, Trace Thompson, Miguel Vargas, Miguel Rojas, I'm not all that, I'm not all that scared of the, of this lineup, uh, you know, I'm not as scared of the lineup as I used to be, and then you have Clayton Kershaw as the ace, 35 years old, has had some injury problems. How how how, how many innings are we really going to see uh, out, of, out of Clayton Kershaw? You have Julio Rios, who I could see being a Cy Young candidate. You have Tony Gonsolin, who I think will be good. Noah Syndergaard could be a underrated comeback player, have a good season, kind of like Andrew Heaney last year. The Dodgers seem to be good at picking up um, starting pitchers or pitchers in general, that were not good and turned them into being good. So Noah Syndergaard could be, and then you also have Dustin May gonna round out that round out that uh, starting rotation there. Dustin May hopefully will stay on the field this year. But again, there's some chinks in the armor here. I could very well see um, San Diego dethroning LA for the first time in a decade in the NL West. So who do I think is gonna make the playoffs? Out of the NL, I, I I can't see the Dodgers not making it. I'm just saying that the I, it could be competitive here. I could see the Dodgers and the Padres making the making the playoffs. I see the uh, Cardinals winning in the Central, and then I see the mm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the Braves 
win the NL East. I think the Mets also... Mm, this is tough. I think the Phillies miss out on the on the playoffs and the Mets make make the playoffs. Um, so that the playoff picture will look like uh, the division winners will be... Oh, boy. Um, you know what? I'm going to go out. Bold prediction. Padres win the NL West. Uh, Padres, Cardinals, and Braves. And then our wild card is going to be the Dodgers and the Mets. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting stuff there. Now, let's get to last call. Um, oh, great. Awesome. So, we're under an hour. I like this. All right. So, last call. We're going to do something a little different with the last call here. Usually, last call, if you've been with me for the last couple of seasons... Last call has been a personal story of mine or whatever guests that I, that I have on and they tell a personal story uh, about baseball. But um, I wanted to start kind of a, a segment where I tell stories of players of yesteryear and may, it may be a player that you've heard of. We, we could do something like Babe Ruth. We could do something like uh, Willie Mays. We could do players like that. But we could also do players that you've never heard of before but probably should right? So I've decided that the first one I'm going to do is a player that you've probably never heard of, but probably should. And March is National Women's History. And this um, this player um, is somewhat relevant, and I'll tell you at the end of the story. Um, but I wanted to tell you the story of a player by the name of Gene Fout. Now, you're probably wondering, Gene, is that a woman's name? Yes, Gene is a woman's name. Gene is a uh, woman, a woman baseball player, um, and she is known as the most dominant female player in uh, all American girls professional baseball league history. Okay, she's known as the Cy Young. I guess you want to say whatever you consider the greatest pitcher in, in uh, of all time, the Cy Young of the All American Girls Professional Baseball League. And her story is very, very interesting. I'm going to tell you a story that I've... I'm going to tell you her story through a couple of sources that I found. The All-American Girl, uh, Pro Girls Professional Baseball League website. And then uh, also from the um, Society of American Baseball Research or Sabre website as well. That's mostly where this is going to come from. Um, but just strap in because this story is very, very interesting. The story of Gene Fout. So Gene Fout was born on January 17, 1925 to parents... Robert and Eva Fout in East Greenville, Pennsylvania. She was one of six children. So she had two brothers and two sisters, if I remember correctly. And her her biggest passion growing up was baseball. And, uh, you know, from previous interviews of her, um, she said that she often found herself with rocks in her hand walking down the street and trying to uh, throw rocks at telephone poles and trying to hit trying to hit these telephone poles. And if you go back to East Greenville, Pennsylvania, you can still see chunks of the um, of the telephone pole dents in the telephone pole from where Jean was throwing rocks at these telephone poles. As she grew up loving the game of baseball, um, she, as she got older, she would frequent the practice the practices of a semi-pro baseball team called the East Greenville Cubs. Um, she often went to practices, and the East Greenville Cubs let her on the field to shag fly, fly balls during practice. So she would go and shag these fly balls, and then uh, the team found out that she, or the team saw that she had a pretty good arm. So eventually, you know, 
and 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 she would come all the time because the 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 team was only a couple of miles from her house. She would go to practices, shag fly balls, and then after a while, the players and coaches noticed that she had a strong arm, so they started letting her throw batting practice for the team. She would throw batting practice every once in a while, and as she was throwing batting practice um, for the team, um, different players, a lot of people uh, or a lot of sources were saying that mainly the team's second baseman was showing her different pitches to throw during batting practice so the team could get used to throwing different uh, types of different types of pitches. Um, now, she spent most of her teen years going to the semi-pro team and kind of being showcased on the on the semi-pro team there. She So she never actually played organized baseball or softball. She really only stayed with the semi-pro team at, at their practices and stuff. Although she was a very successful athlete in high school, she was very successful in field hockey, basketball, and track in high school. Um, and she was also said to be very smart. Uh, she was the valedictorian of her high school and things of that nature. So she was, she was pretty good. And after school, um, after she graduated from high school, uh, she went to work at a clothing factory and a knitting mill in the early 1940s. Now, while all this was going big, you know, world history lesson here, everybody, um, while this was going on as Jean is, uh, just graduating high school, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at Gene graduating high school and the U.S. entering World War II. Now, in World War II, obviously, we've got um, Pearl Harbor and things of that nature. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why um, the U.S. decided to enter World War II. When the, when, the, um, when the U.S. entered World War II, they began what's called a draft and uh, drafting uh, many men to come fight. So essentially, they just uh, told all the men, or they told as many men as they could, come out and fight. Um, you're not signing up. We're making you come in and fight in the war. So they draft all these men to come fight in World War II, and that left many men um, out fighting the war, and uh, many women were left uh, at home, not not fighting the war. So many women went to the factories. Uh, they, you know, as as it's described in history. They went out of the kitchen and went into the work workforce and they went out into factories and, you know, made stuff for the war effort and, you know, basically um, kept the U.S. economy going while the men were out fighting in the war. Well, all of these men, um, these, on top of, or included in this, in these men that went and fought the war, was over 500 professional ball players and very notable baseball players, players such as Hank Greenberg, Yogi Berra, Bob Feller, Warren Spahn, Stan Musial, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Luke Appling. These guys all went and fought World War II. So, so many baseball players went out and fought in the war that MLB baseball had to stop. Professional baseball had to stop because a lot of their, a lot of their players went and fought in the war. But in response to the stoppage of, of, of MLB baseball, one owner of the Chicago Cubs and gum proprietor, Philip K. Wrigley, if you want to, if you want to know, yes, Wrigley Field is named after Philip K. Wrigley. Um, he was very concerned that people would become disinterested in baseball and stop being interested in baseball if if the stoppage went on for too long and there was no baseball for the consumers, the consumer market to watch. So he started 
the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League in 1943 while the war was going on. Um, and so, and this was a huge risk because nobody really knew how, you know, at first people thought women couldn't play baseball and, you know, things of that nature. There was just, it, 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 it was a huge risk, but that was all he had when it came to baseball was he had to pick some of these women to come and play. But the league became a huge success because he found women from all over the country who could play a high level of baseball. During the peak of the All-American Girls Baseball League in 1948, it drew over a million fans to come and watch. And it wasn't like they had TVs uh, to come and watch these things. Or, you know, it wasn't like you could pop on the television and watch the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. You had to buy a ticket. You had to go to the stadium. You had to sit and you had, you know, you buy a hot dog and all of that stuff at the stadium. So over a million fans came and watched in 1948. So it became very popular because these girl, these women started to play, very, you know, pretty high caliber baseball. However, Philip K. Wrigley and, you know, and other scouts were were mainly scouting players from amateur softball leagues. And remember if I told you before, from what I told you before, Gene had had not played organized softball. So they never or, or they had never heard of Gene. And Gene had never heard of the league because she's busy working. She was um she had very uh she her parents instilled a belief in her that working, you know, of a good work ethic and working hard to provide for herself and her family and 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 um, things of that nature. So when this league first started, Jean Fout was not in it. The the league started in 1943. She did not hear about this until 1946 when a scout from Allentown, Pennsylvania, hears of Jean's reputation as a good pitcher in these semi-pro baseball exhibition games. This this scout just kind of heard about this this woman who's pitching in semi-pro baseball games or pitching for semi-pro baseball teams out at practice. And uh, came down, took a look at her, liked her and said, and gave her a train ticket and said, come on down, we, uh, we want you to come play for the All-American uh, Girls Professional Baseball League. Much to her mother's dismay, mother was not happy about this, Jean went out and tried out for the league. Now, she went and tried out for this league. At this point, there were, I believe it was eight teams, right? They just expanded and uh, they went to eight teams. She, she was placed on or she was drafted onto the uh, South Bend Blue Sox, where she played primarily third base in her rookie season. So she was the starting, she got on there and was drafted and was the starting third baseman for the, for the South Bend Blue Sox. But then they put her on the mound at the end of the season, and she pitched brilliantly. She pitched to the tune of an 8-3 and three record, 8 wins, 3 losses, with a 1.32 ERA. Now, that's really difficult. That is like, for instance, Nolan Arenado coming, uh, you know, third baseman for the Cardinals, coming, you know, playing third base, and then at the end of the year, they said, go and pitch, figure this out. And then, she, and then he starts pitching like Cy Young. That's probably equivalent to what we're looking at here, right? Or Bob Feller in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties, okay? Something like that, right? So, 
How was she able to be so successful so quickly? How was she able to get up there, win eight games, only lose three, and give up so few runs, giving up a little more than one run per nine innings? Well, I'll give you a history here of the All-American Girls Baseball League, how it kind of developed. When the league first started, it worked. It looked much more like softball than it did like the conventional baseball that we see today. Okay. The ball was close, was closer to the size of the softball of a softball than it was a baseball. It was much larger. And the pitchers pitched underhand. It was kind of it kind of looked like a softball, fast pitch softball, or maybe even slow pitch. They kind of just underhanded it up there, right? And uh and so and the bases were were shorter, so it looked much more like softball than it did like baseball. But in the mid-40s, because these women were starting to play a higher, higher level of baseball. Um, the game started, the the bases were were expanded out a little more, and the ball got smaller. And because the ball got smaller, these women decided that instead of throwing it underhand, they were going to throw it more overhand. So it's the deliveries were more sidearm or overhand, and it started to look more like conventional baseball. So that allowed for these women to start developing different pitches, pitches like two-seamers, sinkers, and curveballs. Now... When you're somebody like Jean, who has been already pitching for a semi or pitching with a semi-pro baseball team in the, in practice, and she had already been shown these pitches and has developed these pitches for years since she was a teenager, she was already ahead of the game. These girls, you know, these other women were looking at trying to develop these pitches, and Jean already knew how to do it. So she was, she was, she had already developed pitches and they moved more and all kinds of stuff. And she had, um, it was already developed. So it was much harder for these women who had not seen these pitches before, you know, or, you know, maybe had seen it once or twice. It was much harder for them to hit because it was such a better pitch, right? So she went up there and immediately was successful. So coming back, in 1947, she comes back in the 1947 season with a ring on her finger. Marries former Phillies pitching prospect Carl Winch, and she became pregnant during the 1947 season, finished the season two months pregnant, okay? So think about that. Finished the season two months pregnant. Her stats for the 1947 season, 298 innings pitched, 298 innings pitched. To put it in perspective, today we don't see many pitchers throwing over 200 innings. This woman threw almost 300 innings to the tune of a 1.15 ERA. That is a banana statistic. You do not see 1.15 ERA in any sort of professional baseball setting. And so this is unheard of. Okay. Not only that, she did it two months pregnant. That is just, that is crazy to me, okay? So then, after the season, she gives birth to her first son in 1948, okay? And so this starts her, you know, the next five years of her career balancing life between being a mom and being a... Uh, being a professional baseball player. After home games, she would go home, she would cook and clean like any other mom would. And then um, but on the and then when she would go on the road, she would hire a babysitter, right? To to watch the kid while she went off. But um as the kid got to by the time the kid was three years old, 
she would take the um, she would take the kid with her and, uh, on road trips. So you're kind of probably thinking, oh, it's kind of like uh, the movie A League of Their Own with Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and Madonna and uh, Rosie O'Donnell and people like that. Yes, I, I would say it, w it was. It's very comparable to that. Now, none of the characters in the A League of Their Own show or A League of Their Own movie was uh, were real, but it seems like they were based off of different. Uh, different players um so and i think they kind of got this idea i'm sure there were a number of other uh women that brought their kids with them um during during road trips but she also brought kids um with them uh with her on on the on the road trips now it didn't seem like having the kid there or having a kid really stopped her in the 1940. She finished the 1948 season with 250 innings pitched at 1.44 ERA and was selected to her first all-star team um, in the 1948 season. And then she continued her dominance and probably became more dominant, um, even more dominant than she was in 1949 and 1950. In 1949, she threw a hundred uh, or one point uh, 1.10 ERA in 261 innings, and then she came back in 1950 and threw and threw a 1.12 ERA in 290 innings pitched, while also in 1949 hitting a solid 291 ERA or 291 batting average. So remember I said 300 is like a super good a super good average, right? She was just under that, 291 while pitching and being dominant. So we're looking at two-way player here. We're we're looking at the Babe Ruth of the Shohei Otani of All-American Girls Professional Baseball. And this is now these women have been developing these pitches and been getting a little bit better with these pitches and she's still dominating. So just think about that. Now here's where things start to take a turn for the worse when it comes to Jean Fout's story. In 1951, her husband, remember Philly's prospect, Carl Winch, surprisingly takes the job as the manager of South Bend Blue Sox. Now in this case, she had no idea. Apparently Mr. Winch was very secretive and very, you know, private when it came to this stuff. Didn't even tell his wife that he was going to be managing her team. He just took it up and surprised her when he, when he showed up on the field as the manager that season in the 1951 season. Well, what we didn't know was Carl Winch is was had a very hard-nosed managerial style and had very high expectations of womanhood. Um, even that beyond the expectations of the league. So I'm going to uh, another history lesson here on the All-American Girls Baseball League. Not only were the women expected to play high-level uh, high level, um, game of baseball, but they were also expected to act very womanly, I guess you want to say. Um, uh, Philip Wrigley put them through... Um, um, like manners classes, elegance classes, how to, you know, how to sit properly and, and how to talk properly. They weren't allowed to drink alcohol. They weren't allowed to, uh, go out and party. Um, they had very strict, um, uh, regulations when it came to what they dressed. Um, as you saw, what you see in the movie is very consistent with what they wore, um, or the movie, a league of their own. It's very consistent with what they wore in real life. They wore many, um, they wore many skirts. They were um, 
you know, pretty much that was like the entertainment value at that point is they wanted attractive women to come out and play a high level game of baseball, but act womanly at the same time. Um, so now, and it was very difficult for these women to play baseball and hold that, hold this expectation. And Carl Winch had an even higher expectation than that of, than that of the league itself. And it caused a lot of issues because Jean was married to Carl Winch. She was guilty by association and, and on top of that, them being jealous of the fact that she was probably the best player, at least best pitcher in the league. She was ostracized by many of her teammates and spent a lot of time, especially on the road alone rather than being with the team. Um, so this is where the downfall starts to happen here. Um, she starts to have some personal issues and, and the team starts to not like her because her husband, who I guess was accused of uh, possibly being jealous of the fact that um, Gene was so good at pitching. Um, and that's why, you know, that could be the answer as to why he came and, uh, and, and managed the team and, you know, things like that. So it made life very difficult for Gene. Um, but the turmoil didn't show on the field because in the 1951 season pitched 190 innings, 1.33 year RA still has not given up more than two runs. Okay. And, uh, she helped South Bend win the first championship in their tenure, despite 12, only 12 players on the roster. So less than a little than your local little league team was on the roster and they still won six starters left the team in the middle of the season because of Carl Winch's managerial style. And even with all of this, Fout did so well, won the championship, and was recognized as player of the year. Okay? Um, and then in the next... So she comes back next year, 1952, uh, pitched a two, a two, the tune of a 20-2 and two record. 20 wins... Two losses, a .93 ERA, less than one run, .93 ERA, and led South Bend to their second straight championship, which was unheard of in the American, in the All American Girls Professional Baseball League, especially when you guys might recognize this: the Rockford Peaches were like the Yankees of the All American Girl Professional Baseball League. Okay, they were um, they were probably the best, and they beat the best, um, and they beat the uh, Rockford Peaches to get their second championship. And right around this time, if I remember correctly, um, right around this time, the uh, Gene Fout not only wins the championship, but in this, but right around this time, she also throws her first perfect game. It was a 2-0 masterpiece of a win against the Rockford Peaches. And that would be just one of the four no-hitters that she hurls during her tenure as the All uh, in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Um, so there we go, winning the championship again in 1952. Just missed back-to-back -back Player of the Year awards by one vote. By one vote. But then she'd come back in 1953 and recapture the honor of player of the year by leading the league in wins, 17 wins, 
strikeouts with 143 and ERA 1.53 and also hitting an astounding 275 average. So again, player of the year. But unfortunately, South Bend were struggling that year, did not win. Uh, did not win the championship that year. All all while all the while this is happening, she's continuing to dominate and really just become really etched as the best player that the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League has seen, her personal issues begin to grow worse and worse. Her team starts to like her less and less. The hus- or Her husband, Carl Winch, starts to make it more and more difficult for her to play and cont- more and more pressure, more and more um, animosity starts to grow and um, she reaches her breaking point at the end of the 1953 season. And at the end of the 1953 season, she retires from baseball. Now, in hindsight, there, you know, she didn't miss much when it came to retiring after 1953 because the league folds after the 1954 season due to a lackadaisical type of marketing from the All-American for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and the fact that the men came back from the war and Major League Baseball was back. So Major League Baseball was back and everybody kind of forgot about these women that were playing professional baseball. But in the 1954 season, many people, I guess it's been told that many people went back and told Jean that South Bend would have won the championship without or with her if she had played in 1954 and that killed her inside. So if you've ever been a professional or not, not necessarily a professional baseball player, just a baseball player. And if you've loved baseball and had a dream of becoming, or even just an athlete in particular, I see this a lot in athletes and you stop something doing something that you love it's very very difficult to transition it's very difficult to transition in your head and become you know and do something different and be away from the thing that you love so it killed her inside not to be playing baseball and really just kind of messed her up so in order to do in order to get away from that she dove into her family life so by this time um she she still dove into her um you know, life as a wife, as a mom of her one son, and then a secretarial job. She gave birth to another son in 1957. So that's what, four years after she retires from baseball. And she continues this marriage and then divorces Carl Winch in 1968 and remarries in 1977. But, and she would continue, you know, but she would continue to, you know, miss the game that she loved, miss playing the game that she loved, even though she was not... (laughs) This wasn't the only sport apparently she was good at. She would also pursue a professional bowling career for 30 years. She was a professional bowler for 30 years after her baseball career. And finally, in 1988, Jean Fout, along along with uh, a number of women in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, were honored with an exhibit in the Hall of Fame in 1988. Um, and then every year after that, they would have a reunion in different parts of the country. And, uh, you know, much like you see in the movie, uh, a league of their own, they kind of play a baseball game and they reunite and they talk about the league and, you know, kind of reminisce. And a lot of people would, and she would go every year and play until she couldn't play anymore. And then she cheered them on all the way through until she was, uh, until she, uh, unfortunately passed away just a few days ago. And on March 1st, 2023, but still, um, many people that know the, um, 
And that's that's why I did this story was because it, it's very relevant. She just died. She just passed away. Um, like I said, March 1st. So we're looking at what, three days ago. So it's still very fresh. My thoughts and prayers go out to um, Jean Fouts family and, and, and friends. Um, it sounds like she was a wonderful lady and, uh, really wish that she, you know, we, more baseball fans would hear of her story. And, um, you know, hopefully this podcast does justice in telling her story. This woman probably deserves her own podcast episode in general. I'm probably over when it comes to, uh, the, the time, the hour time here, but, um, I really wanted to get this story out there. So, this fantastic, this fantastic woman, let, let me give you some of her accolades here. She led the All-American uh, Girls Professional Baseball League in ERA three different times, 1950, 1952, 1953. She led the league in shutouts in 1949 with 12, 12 shutouts in 1949. That's amazing. She has the league's lowest career ERA at 1.23. She has a career 1.23 ERA in 235 games or 1,700 innings pitched. That means per start, she would pitch an average of seven and a half innings. That's what you're looking at here, seven and a half innings. Nowadays, you don't hardly see any pitchers going past six, let alone seven, seven and a half, close to eight. She would pitch to a to a record of 140 wins and 64 losses. She was a four-time All-Star selection, 1949, 1950, 1951, and then again in 1953. And apparently she would also play the All-Star team on South Bend in 1952. She was Player of the Year in 1951, Missed Player of the Year by one vote in 1952, and then won it again in 1953. She would hurl four no-hitters in her career, including two perfect games, one of them being a masterpiece 2-0 win against the Yankees of the AAGPBL, Rockford Peaches. Rest in peace. Uh, rest in peace, Mrs. Fout. You will be missed in the baseball community, and I'm sure your family and friends will miss you as well. Um, hopefully her story gets to be told more as it goes on. And that is how we are going to conclude the Round Trippers podcast. Thank you for letting me tell this story of Gene Fout. Um, and uh, that is the, that's also the NL preview show. We're going to be, uh, next episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some research that I've done on creating more runs and what types of hits create more runs. And I'm going to give you a historical background from that. Go ahead and leave a review on uh, Spotify or Stitcher or anywhere that uh, anywhere that you listen to this podcast, uh, looking for an incentive maybe to give you guys um, for reviewing it. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you for reviewing and giving me a review on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and anywhere or iHeartRadio anywhere you're going to listen to this. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you next week on Monday. And until next time, have a good one, everybody.